Well, praise the Lord for this great worship this morning. And we want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our series on together. And today is growing together. Now, before I get into the message this morning out of Ephesians 4, let me just um, say a couple of things. Uh, at the end of this message, we are going to ask you to participate uh, in some way uh, in the message in response to it. And so this uh, Get Connected card is pretty important. And of course, on your QR code as well, if you'd like to download it. And so if you would just fill that out, maybe the front of it, and prepare yourself for uh, the response time, that'll be great. And then also, let me just say that usually um, I put up verses one by one, even through the text, and have that done during the, uh, the sermon. And this morning is not going to be quite as much because uh, it was my fault. I just forgot to do it. And so therefore, I forgot to instruct them to do it. And so therefore, what I want, really want you to do today, especially today, is to open up your Bibles and turn with me to the passage as we go through it verse by verse, because that's the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to take it verse by verse, word by word almost. And it's really good for you to follow along either in your printed Bible or maybe in your app. So if you'll go ahead and do that, that'll be great too. We're growing together, Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verse 11 here in just a minute. But here's the question of the day. Why should you want to grow as a Christian? You say, well, I've never thought about it. I mean, I just thought we were supposed to. Well, think about it for just a moment. Now, the very moment you and I are saved, you know, we invite Jesus into our heart. And at that point, point our, our sins are forgiven. Christ comes into our life and we begin living the Christian life. And we are perfect in his sight. We are per, in positionally, we are perfect in his sight because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Then when we die, we're going to go to heaven. And at that point, we will be really perfect, actually in action, in practicality. And so if we're saved now and the Bible says that we inherit eternal life, the very moment that we're saved, our ticket's already been punched, you might say to heaven. We've already got our ticket to heaven. And when we get to heaven, we're going to be like Jesus already. Then why the journey? Why the whole thing in between? And why should I even want that or desire that or maybe even to sacrifice anything for it? Well, we want to look at those questions today and we're going to see kind of how the church fits into that as well. We look at our text this morning and as we do that, we open up to Ephesians chapter 4. We started this series actually in chapter 1. And then we've gone off into other places and because it is a kind of a topical series. But we come back to Ephesians. And remember that Ephesians is divided up into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3. We talked about that a little bit a few weeks ago when we talked about the doctrine. And then chapters 4 through 6 is about the application of that doctrine. Now in Ephesians 4, he starts off with this application about the unity of the church. Because this book even though it applies to every single individual and really is one of my favorite books of the Bible, by the way. Um, it applies to every individual, but it's really talking about the church body as a whole. So he talks about the unity of the body. Then he talks about the ministry. And then now he's talking about the maturity of the body of Christ, the church, you and I, as well as the church as a whole. And so with this, I want us to look at beginning in verse 11. He says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by every human cunning, by craftiness and our deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ, for whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now that's a, that's a handful right there to even preach on. I could do a whole series probably just on this passage. So I want us to hit some of the main uh, things about this passage that I believe Paul is trying to get through to us on this. First of all, we'll just look at the questions. First of all, what, what is the goal of the Christian life? What is the goal of it all? Why should we want it? And thirdly, where does the church fit into that to help you grow in Christ? First of all, then let's look at what is the goal. Well, to understand the goal, we need to understand what we are. What is a Christian? Notice it says in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up of the body of Christ. This word to equip really means to restore to the original uh, uh, design. And we know that what that's like in Genesis. Genesis, Adam and Eve were created perfectly. Now, when you and I become a Christian, the Bible says that the Spirit of God comes to live inside of us and we are jointly fit together. I want you to notice here, it says in verse 15 that Christ is the head, we are the body. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, it's just, it's just a symbolism. It's an illustration. It says Christ is the head, we're the body. But you know, you don't sew on a head onto a body. You don't weld it on unless you're Frankenstein or something. It's just all part of it. So my head and my body share the same DNA. We share the same heart. We share the same nervous system. So we're all one together. Now the Bible says as Christians, we share certain things. And back in chapter four and verse four, it says there's one body, that's talking about us, one spirit, Holy Spirit, just as we were called to the one, hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, there's a lot of ones there, but let me concentrate on three things. It says, you're one with the Spirit, you're one with the Father, you're one with the Son. The Trinity of God is right here in this passage. And he's saying, look, a Christian is someone who has the Trinity of God living within them, represented there by the Holy Spirit of God. When you and I come before the cross, we come humbly. We say, God, I can't save myself. It's not about being good. It's not about being good enough. It's about, not about works. It's not about anything I do on the outside. Physically, I do on the outside. It's something on the inside. When I call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, I will be saved. At that moment, the Spirit of God comes to live inside the person, and we have the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit represented there by the Spirit of God. It's not about just being good. It's a one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's a new person. It's not a nicer person. It should be a nicer person, I should say that. But it's not necessarily a nicer person. Um, my wife called my, uh, my attention to a book that was uh, out several years ago. I've never read the book, but she did. It's called The Good Girl. And it's a, a girl brought up in church always trying to do better well, she never really got it, I don't think, that it's not about just doing better 
It's about doing something brand new. It's about having a new heart within ourselves. I love what uh, the Bible has a great illustration of this in, back in the book of Genesis. It's really in the Bible, there are two words, two main words in uh, the Old Testament for the word create. One is the word barak, and it means to create something out of nothing. God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing there, and he just created it out of nothing. There's another word that we would uh, more call made because he made or created something out of something that already existed. For example, he took the, the dust of the ground and he made man and formed man from the dust of the ground. He took something and made something better out of it. I hope that you consider that better anyway. And so there's two different words. Now, when you look at David in Psalm 51, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That word is Barak. David is admitting there's nothing in my heart that can get cleaned up. There's nothing in my heart that needs to be reformed. It's, it's no good from the start. The Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is a, a sinfulness in the heart of man. He says, Lord, create in me a brand new heart. Give me a new heart. When you and I are saved, when Jesus Christ comes into our life, it's not that he takes the old heart and we said the heart, remember what we said, it's the causal core of who you are and what you decide to be. It's your decision uh, basis in your life, the causal core of who you are. This causal core cannot be reformed. It cannot just be merely cleaned up. God has to take that spiritual heart out of us and put a brand new one in there, ignited by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what a Christian is. It's more than just someone forgiven, although they are. It's more than someone that has received eternal life, though they have. It's a person with God living on the inside of them, represented there by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, so we will have a new heart and a new way of life, knowing that we've humbled ourselves before God and just say, God, I can't save myself. I can't clean up. I can't do any better. It's not of works unless any person should boast, Ephesians tells us in chapter 2, but I just simply come to you and God places a brand new heart in us. That's who we are. Now, where are we? Well, it depends on who you are. But the Bible tells us that once we're born again, we are born again. We're, we're infants spiritually in Christ. He says in verse 14, I'm going to skip the, uh, verse 13 and come back to it. He says, we may no longer be children. He says, tossed to and fro. So where are you now? Well, the Bible tells us this word infant means literally some, someone who cannot talk as yet. So it's a kind of a toddler, someone younger. And the, Paul says we. He says in this verse, he says, so that we will not still be children. So you see, when you and I are first saved, first born again, spiritually speaking, we're born anew. Therefore, we're compared to a newborn baby. It says in 1 Peter, Peter says it this way, like newborn infants, newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk, that is the word of God, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now this salvation is not what I just explained to you, the born again experience, because salvation has three stages. That, you know, the first stage is that you're born again. You're justified, all your sins are forgiven, and you're saved from the penalty of sin forever. 
The second part of salvation is what it's talking about here. Sanctification, set apart by God so you can be saved from the power of sin in your life. And finally, glorification is when we get to heaven, we're saved from the very presence of, of sin in our life. And so he's talking here, here about the three stages and the readers understood that. And so he says, who are, who are we right now? Well, we may still be babes in Christ. But then thirdly, where do, what do we want to become? What is the goal of all this? He says back up in verse 13. First, he says in verse 12, building up. And that's not numerically here. Nothing wrong with that. The Bible talks about all the numbers in the book of Acts. But he's talking specifically to the church. And he says the building up, the maturity of the body of Christ, being the church, until we all attain. So the word obtain says to us there's a goal in mind. There's something that we haven't reached as yet. And it's important that we do that. And he says to attain this journey of mind. And he says that to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's saying, look, this is what we need to do. This is our goal in life, that you will become more and more and more like Jesus Christ. We're called to it. In fact, Romans 8.29 says who he did foreknow, he also predestined, he preplanned that they would be conformed to the image of his Son. And so the attainment is, once we receive Christ, the free gift of eternal life, we then begin to grow and more and more and more we mature in Christ until we never get perfect, but then when we get to heaven, we're glorified and we become perfect, saved from the presence of sin. So why in the world should you want it? I mean, after all, there are tools involved here. The Bible, you gotta read the Bible. You gotta read what God's word says. I mean, that's, that's the food. That's the sincere milk of the word of God. Pray, need to pray, suffering. Now, we're going to suffer anyway, but why should we respond positively to suffering when it's really kind of costing us something? When James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing, the trying of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, patience. And let patience have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Wow, what a goal. That's something so great to attain, but why should I even want that considering that it's gonna take some time in the word, some sacrifice perhaps, some patience, and some trust, big time trust in the Lord. Why not just go ahead and live my life and one day I'll get to heaven and I'll be perfect just like everybody else. Why should you want it? Well, because, first of two reasons. First of all, because of who babies really are. Now think about an infant for just a moment. What are the characteristics, really, of a baby? He says in verse 13, or verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. And he characterizes him just real quickly. He says, tossed to and fro by the waves. They're emotionally unstable. Laughing one minute, crying the next. I have a grandson recently was just went to uh, kindergarten for the first time. Been, you know, he's going to pre-kindergarten and, and spending a couple of days, you know, on uh, the, the preschool. And they played a lot. So you can imagine the shock of going to school now. So he comes home and he's perfectly calm. And his dad asks him, he said, well, son, how'd you, how'd you enjoy your first day of school? He throws his backpack up in the air and starts crying, profusely just crying. And he said, I didn't have any fun all day. 
And he said, and the teacher stood up there and just talked adult talk all day. He said, well, son, that adult talk I think was for you. But then he laid his head down on a table and he said, he was just crying and he looked up and he said, smile on his face, said, somebody needs to play Uno with me right now. You see, it's just kind of like one, one way or another, one way or another. And when they're really small babies, boy, I mean, they wake up in the middle of the night, they're emotionally unstable. Now, spiritually, what are we like when we're babies? Well, we trust God one moment. We come to church like this. We say, oh, you know, the, the word of God and the music fired, music fired me up, you know, and I'm, I'm ready to go. I, I, I'm ready to trust God with my life. But then Monday, something happens to knock you off your spiritual balance. And now you doubt God. You go back and forth. And the Bible talks, it, talks about it being unstable in all of your ways. You really, all of us are babies when we're saved. We're newborn babies. You don't want to remain that way because not only are you unstable, but generally speaking, babies are selfish. We have to teach them to share things. They interrupt you when you're talking. They interrupt you when you're sleeping. I mean, how many of you have a newborn? You've ever had a newborn? Raise your hand. Well, three of you. Okay. I don't know. Just talking to the youth group or something here. But they're, they're selfish by nature. And because of that, when we are emotionally uh, selfish, self-centered, as a believer in Christ, we're not glorifying the Lord. You know, somebody comes and says, you know, I wish uh, the pastor would preach on this, and he's not preaching on this. I'm going to go find a church that does. Well, I tried my, my cross-life experience. Now I'm going to go and try somebody else's church for another experience. Just unstable. Somebody says, oh, that's my seat. We've had that to happen a time or two here before. I think every church has. You're sitting in my seat. Now, what are they saying there? I'm, I'm, a, I'm still a spiritual infant. I still need to grow because somehow or another, I need to look at things from that angle and hear things this way in order to be satisfied as a, as a consumer in our church. And we are, we, we come as consumers. Well, how, what about the bathrooms? What about, what about the friendliness of the church? Are the bathrooms clean? Is the foyer clean? Is, is where I'm sitting a, a good seat? Is the air conditioning just right? Over and over and over again, we begin to do this. Somebody once said that, um, and I shouldn't maybe share this with you, it's a preacher thing, but a lot of you have heard it before. You know, some pastor told me one time, he said, the, the ministry would be a wonderful thing if it weren't for people. And that's not really true. But spiritually speaking, the ministry is wonderful with mature Christian people. It, could, it just couldn't be a better job in a lot of ways. It's a long job, hardworking job, let me just say, for our staff's benefit. But it's wonderful. But with infants, you can imagine, if you were in a household filled with maybe 25 50, 100 babies trying to raise them all at one time. It's difficult with the infants. And so, not only that, but they're gullible. They'll swallow anything. Look, look what it says here they, uh, in verse 14. They're tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by trickery, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. They'll swallow anything. A baby will put anything in their mouth. I remember when I was a toddler, I wasn't much more than a toddler, maybe four years old, five years old, 
um, I was over at my grandmother's house. We were playing outside, and suddenly all kinds of commotion began to go on. And I didn't know what was happening. Didn't interrupt my, I mean, that's adult stuff, right? But my brother, my younger brother was thrown into a, uh, carried into a car and they rushed off. And I said, what is going on there? And I, I think my sister said, I think he, I, I think um, our brother may have swallowed some poison and they're rushing him to the hospital. Well, I don't think he actually uh, did that, but they didn't know. I mean, there was some, something spilled there. He was standing, sitting right beside it. And you just don't know because a baby will put anything in their mouth. <clears throat> An immature believer will put anything, any kind of doctrine in their mouth. You know, let's search this one out. Let's go to this church or this guy that's on television. Let's listen to him. And so you don't want to be that way because you could be carried off in another direction out outside the will of God because of an immaturity. They, they live for the moment. They can't sense how other people are feeling around them. Therefore, it affects their relationships in a very negative way, or at least a, a, a spiritually immature Christian. And so we, we have trouble with trust. One moment we're trusting. Another moment we're not. Have trouble with relationships. I was reading an article the other day where it says how difficult it is to maintain relationships in our society. So difficult. We don't want to be that way. So First of all, you, don't, you want to become mature in Christ because you don't want to be a baby all your life, spiritually speaking, and also because you really want what maturity brings. What is that? We see this uh, already, the steadfastness of God, the patience of God. Listen, if you don't learn patience in your life, if I don't learn patience in my life, we will learn little else. If we don't have patience, we'll get very little else. Part of the fruit of the Spirit the Bible says is patience. Not only that, but wisdom. Oh, many of you here are, are thinking to yourself, man, you know, I wish I could go back five years and make that decision all over again. If you're over 40 years old, there's probably not a person in here that would say, yeah, I'd do things a little bit differently. Well, let me ask you this. Do you want to come five years from now or 10 years from now and look back on today or the next 10 years and say, ooh, I wish I'd have made different decisions on that. That was unwise. I shouldn't have done that. The wisdom of God comes from knowing the word of God and the mind of Christ. It comes in maturity, able to handle adversity. One of the tests, by the way, when the lost world looks at us outside the church walls, are you really living the Christian life? Yeah, they do look at morality, but even more so, they look at how we handle adversity and suffering. You want big faith? Somebody says, well, you know, I want my answers to prayer. I, I look and I think to myself, wow, you know, other people get answers. I see answers in the Bible, but God's just not giving me answers to prayer. Do you want big faith? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. How do you get big faith? The Bible says, so faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. How do you do it? Through maturity and the things you do to be, become mature in Jesus Christ. Don't you want these things? Don't you want to no longer be an infant? And then, of course, there's unity in the body as well. Unity comes. Do you really want to go to a church that's always fighting? No, I don't, I don't think so. You want to go somewhere. You've got enough fighting at work or fighting at home. You want to go somewhere where everybody's really on the same page. How do you get there? Your leaders at least have to be mature in Christ. So where does the church fit in? How's the church going to really help you in this? Well, of course, there's unity of the body. Look in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. 
Now, when we're talking about faith, oftentimes in the Bible, we talk about the word, uh, the, uh, the Greek word that has to do with believing God. This word has to do with the doctrines of the Bible. The unity of what we believe, it says, in the knowledge of God's Son, when that happens, we are more unified. Why? Well, we're coming together on the doctrine. We're agreeing on that. We're learning from one another. That causes us to get closer and closer together. And the Bible says iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another person. Therefore, when we come together like that, we're going to become closer to one another in the unity of the body. But then also, very important thing here, the context of Scripture, the context of it. He says, so that, verse 14 again, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, that's emotional instability, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, et cetera, et cetera. And so here we find children, again, go off in all kinds of directions. What does the church do for us? The church brings the, the scripture into context. I was uh, reading an article the other day and on the internet, and as I was reading the article, sometimes I like to go below the article and read all the comments. And one person uh, put down uh, something to the effect, uh, you know, that's why I don't go to church anymore, and that's why I'm not uh, you know, worried about Christianity and all that, is because you know, there's you know, slavery, for example, brought that out of nowhere. Slavery is okay in the Bible. It's okay if you're, you have slaves in the Bible. It's okay if you do this in the Bible. Okay if you do that in the Bible. Nothing could have been further from the truth. The Bible talks about, for example, slavery in the Bible because Roman, Romans had slaves. There were more slaves in Rome than there were Roman citizens. It was there. Now, the Bible could have just ignored it. The Bible could have reinvented history. And just say, oh, there were no slaves in Rome. No, it didn't. It just simply, in the teaching of Paul's letters and the teaching of uh, uh, other letters as well, it just simply said there's, there's slavery that exists. Here's how to handle it. Here's how to do it. What about where uh, it talks about being perfect? And somebody bring out, oh, yeah, you're not perfect either. It says right here, be ye perfect, Jesus said, as your Father in heaven is also perfect. Well, none of us are perfect. What about that? It's a contradiction in the Bible. No, it's not at all. The Sermon on the Mount, as we said a few weeks ago, was given to Jewish people in order to get them to a situation where they knew they needed a Savior. No longer trusting in the law, no longer trusting in Moses and Abraham, but knowing that they needed a Savior in Jesus Christ. When you take that in context, that verse makes absolute sense. There's other things in the Bible as well. Like the guy that um, went through the Bible, and maybe you've done this before. I wouldn't recommend it. And this is the reason. He goes through the Bible, and he says, look, God, whatever you tell me to do right now, I'm going to do it. And he just flips through the Bible, opens it up, points to a verse, and it, it's that verse where Judas went out and hung himself. And he said, well, you know, yeah, that's not going to work out. He says, I'll try this again. So he's flipped through the Bible, and he says, go out and do likewise. And then finally, he says, I'm going to give this one more shot. He opened up the Bible and says, what thou doest do quickly. So you cannot always trust that kind of thing. Why? It's out of context. He said, you know, pastor, I'm getting tired of that. You know, I, I know I'm not a believer, but, you know, I get tired. Oh, it's all about the context. Every book is about the context. There's not a book ever written in the history of mankind that you don't have to take in context. If you're reading a novel and you just rip one page out of it and just say, I'm just going to believe that this novel's about whatever's on this page, you'll become confused 
and you won't know what that novel's about. History book, you take something out of history, the same thing. I, I used to read a lot. Uh, I love the books by Philip Yancey, a Christian um, skeptic, you might say. And he would take something like uh, the book, Disappointment with God. He'd look at that title. And if you were to look at that title, by the way, Disappointment with God, you would think, wow, this guy must be an atheist. No, not at all. He's a Christian writer. But he would take stories and he would take things and ask questions and then answer those questions. If you were to take one of his stories or in fact, you could take three or four pages out, rip them out, and just read those. And this guy is an atheist. You see, every book has a context. Every page and every word of every book that's ever been written has a context to it. The difference in the Bible is this. You read a, a novel, you can read it all the way through, and it's chronological, one page after another. In the Bible, you've got Genesis through the rest of the historical books, and you put them together, and then you take the prophets, the, the, minor, the major prophets, those five books, then the 12 minor prophets, and you have to put them into the timetable of the history. The New Testament, Matthew's the first book. Did you know Mark was the first one written? You know, 1 Thessalonians was written before, before Ephesians. Book of Revelation is the last book, but other than that, it, it's just different. You need an interpreter. You need someone to put those things into context and outside the church body. Very difficult to do that. In fact, really kind of impossible to do that. Thirdly, I, I need to hurry here. Community in the church. I already talked about that. We need it for strength, for support. It, it's the illustration here, the body of Christ. We're all together. One, verse 15 says, or 16 says, the whole body joined together, held together, by every joint with which it is equipped. When it, man, when it's going good, it's just going to build itself up. It's an organic type situation. We need one another to grow. Then there's a change in life. Listen, dear friends, I know we all hate change. The reason we hate change is because we hate loss. Even in a church, we don't hate the change. We just, the question in our mind is, what am I going to lose if we change? And so, we look at this, but understand this, you cannot grow without changing. Your body can't grow without changing. So how do you do this? Well, obviously you do it through the word of God, through prayer, through adversity, but also the church as well. Look with me in verse 15. Rather, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ. He says, let me, let me look at this. Speaking the truth in love, what? what what's going to happen if I speak the truth in love? I'm going to grow in every way. In fact, it's implied here and, and really explained if you look at the entire chapter four, it's explained to us. You cannot do this. You can't have speaking the truth in love without the church. You can't do that without Christians around you. We talked uh, last week and the week before that, I get them kind of confused myself, um, on the, the singer that says, you know, well, I'm, I know I'm a good singer because Kelly Clarkson or, or, or whoever was here and they told me I was. All of us have blind spots in our life and we don't know who we are unless we have community around us. Because you see, we don't, we're, not, we're not on a, a, one of those reality TV shows where you got a camera in the corner and the camera's following you along all of your life. We don't have a camera like that. We don't see ourselves. 
We're walking along, and you, you, you look at the camera, and you think, wow, is that me? I didn't know I looked that way. I didn't know I walked that way. You hear yourself on the tape recorder. I didn't know I talked that way. I was, um, heard about a, a guy um, up in the Northeast. He was, uh, when he was younger, he said that tape recorders came out for the first time. And so he, he taped his voice, and he was preaching, and he taped his sermon. His wife was there, and then we're just sort of, he just sort of cut it on. His wife was there and a couple of friends. And he cut it on, and he, he said to, he said, wow, that tape recording is not really, really authentic, is it? I mean, I, I sound so whiny. I sound whiny. And they said, no, that's the way you sound all the time. And we don't know how our voice sounds. In fact, the only thing I know about my, in fact, I hear, I don't hear my real voice. I hear what's the bone, what, the bones of my neck, my head, my ear. That's what, I, I hear something different than what you hear. You hear something different what everybody else is hearing as well. And so it says here that we need to speak the truth in love. How do you do that? Well, you just uh, blurt it on out and be, be loving about it, right? Speaking the truth in love. The truth is, somebody comes along maybe after the service and says, uh, Pastor, I know about the stick for six stuff. You know, it's come for six Sundays. I've been my fifth Sunday. I just need to tell you right now, I grew up listening to skinny preachers. And, uh, you know, you're just too fat. And if you were to slim down a little bit, then I could listen to you much better. Now, that may be the truth. I, I don't know. But all I know is didn't sound too loving. You say, Pastor, I know what you're talking about. He should have come to you and said, Pastor Mercer. You know, I'm in my fifth Sunday, and I just, I want you to know I love you, but you're too fat. You're just, you know, I like to look at a skinny preacher and maybe an athletic one, and you're kind of, you know, it gets kind of gross sometimes. And, and, and then you come down, I, I can't believe he got his feelings hurt on that. I was so sweet about it. That's not love. It, it doesn't matter. Sometimes it doesn't matter how you say it. It's just what you say. What is speaking the truth in love all about? The love is the motive behind it. All right? It's the motive. It's coming to that person that's sitting in your seat and saying, uh, you know, you're welcome to my seat. This is what I said every Sunday. And the reason I do that is that the air conditioning is so cold right here. Nobody else can stand it. So I'm, I'm sort of doing that for other people. That's doing it in love. That may not be true, but it's doing it in love, all right? That's the loving, the loving heart of someone, of coming out and saying, look, I love you enough. See, love is the motive. It's the motive behind it all. And somebody could come to me and say, well, uh, pastor, I want you to know that I'm really concerned about your health. You know, I know that you're maybe having trouble with this or that or the other. And, uh, you know, it, it's really, I think, if you went on a, a better diet and started exercising more, you know, that would really help you. And uh, I just want you to know that I love you and I'm really concerned about you and I'm a, I'm a physician and I'm really concerned about you. And I might look at you and say, well, who are you? Oh, I, I met you three years ago at the uh, dinner with the pastor. That's the last time I came to church. Okay, well, thank you very much for that information. You know what's going to happen there? Just like you, right over your head, right? Why? You're not really sure they care. You can't be sure about that. They may have another agenda. It doesn't speak 
of a loving voice in your life. What do you have to have to have that loving voice? You have to have someone that's speaking to you truth in love that you know, that knows you, that loves you, that has your best interests at heart. And you know and you discern through that. They are telling me something that's very, very important to my life and they have, they have no agenda of their own. How are you gonna know that? You gotta know people. And you can't just simply have a, a Christian come to you out of the blue and tell you truth and love because you don't have a camera on and you don't have a tape recorder on and you don't see the blind spots in your life. I can't do that either. I have to have someone speaking the truth in love toward to me that has my best interest at heart and, and approaching one of my blind spots and I'm still not gonna be happy about it, but I'm gonna pray about it. I'm gonna go to myself and say, God, you know, is this something I need to look at? Why? Because someone who cared about me spoke the truth in love. You can't have that apart from the church. Even when you go to work and somebody says, I'm speaking the truth in love, there may, may not even be a baby in Christ. They may not even know the Lord at all. How can they have the wisdom of God if they don't know the Lord? You need to be a part of the body, the body of Christ. We all live and receive blessings because of the people around us. It's important that we connect with certain people in a smaller group and even smaller than a small group. C.S. Lewis, the great writer and professor, wrote Mere Christianity. He tells a story, and I, don't, I can't remember the guy's names, but he had two friends that he always met once a week or so, sometimes more, and they met every week and just discuss their lives. Kind of like what we would call accountability partners or something. And uh, they talked to one another. We just call them Robert and James. And um, James died. And he says, well, he was so sad about it. But after he got over it, he cheered himself up and said, I'll, I'll have more Robert. I'll have more Robert in my life. But after a couple of meetings, he realized he didn't have more Robert. He had less of Robert because James brought things out in Robert that C.S. Lewis needed in his life, and James was not there to bring that out. He really lost part of one and all of the other. You see, we need one another to speak that truth in love. And we see this as an example in Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for our sins, and his motive was love for us. There was a, um, two ladies, three actually, three ladies that were really good friends, and one of them had a business, very successful on the outside, but the books were a mess. She owed money, about to go under. And a second friend who was really brilliant at um, business stuff, uh, not selling like this other lady was, but she's great at, at, uh, at uh, the books and accounting. And uh, she also was kind of rich. And she said, look, I'll do the books for you. Not only that, but whatever you're short every month, I'll make up the difference. First lady said, well, great. Great. It's wonderful. So this went on for several months. And the third friend came up and said, you know, I don't think you've really stopped and realized the sacrifice this other friend was making. You need to check your books. Look at them. And so she did. And she was amazed. What a mess they were in. She never realized how close her business was really and should have gone under. 
And she looked at the amount of money that her friend was putting in, and she was, again, amazed. How could she even do that? So I have not been grateful. And she went to her friend and said, I, I just never realized what a mess my business was in. And I never realized the sacrifice that you were making. Aren't we like that with Jesus? Aren't we? See, until you realize the bad news that we're sinners separated from God, no matter how insulting that is, is the truth. And the reason I'm telling you that truth is not because I want to put you down, not because I want to make myself feel better because I'm a sinner too, saved by the grace of God. But I'm telling you that and sharing that with you because the scripture tells you that so you will have a need in your life to get over the mess, to get through all the mess. And your life, you might say, is in that kind of mess. And all the sins that you've ever committed stacked up. And we don't realize how one sin is enough to, to break the heart of God. But also the love where Jesus came and died on the cross for your sins. That he could save us and grow us into all that we can become. That we can have the impact in life that we want. And then one day die, go to heaven and be like him. Have you ever made that decision to follow Jesus? Have you ever made that decision where you've come to yourself and just say, my life's a mess? You say, oh, I don't feel like it's all that. Look closely. Look closely. And see your need for forgiveness, your need for a Savior today. With heads bowed and eyes closed, so that's the, the plea of your heart. I want to invite you to become that newborn babe that new infant, born again in Jesus Christ. And you can do that by surrendering your heart to, and life to Christ. Now, the way I'd like to do it this morning is to pray a prayer with you. If you really mean the prayer, I believe that Jesus Christ will come into your heart the way he did mine. The Spirit of God will represent the Trinity in your life and you will become a born-again believer. You can pray silently, whether here or on, there at home. You can pray silently, follow along with me as I pray aloud. Pray with me now. Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for me. My life spiritually is a mess. But I thank you for your provision of your blood to pay for that mess. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Save me now. As our heads are continually bowed, you as a Christian, are you maturing in the Lord? And if not, what's, what's stopping you? Is it your place in the church or lack of place? Is it the Bible, lack of reading, prayer? What is it is going on in your life that would cause you not to become mature in Christ, not grow in the Lord. Confess that to the Lord and ask him to take that from you and so you can get on that road of being all God wants you to be. Would you pray that? Lord, we thank you for all that you've done in this room as you move in people's hearts even now. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.